Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it you're comes never to keeping things short. Go on. I'm five, You're five. Not <laughs> when it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check <laughs> it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media, ten bucks covers our website for a month, and twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Oh. Okay, that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook, and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil, and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet, because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. Here in the Lakeside Studio, we are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight we reach back into our listener mailbag to bring you our guide to the ring cycle. What is it? Why do opera people like talking about it so much? We'll tell you what it takes to survive four nights of opera, but first, the winner of the 2019 Marian Anderson Vocal Award, Bass Solomon Howard, goes inside the huddle to talk about bringing opera to a larger community and leading the way in what it means to be a black artist at the apogee of American opera. Plus, in the two-minute drill, we give you our hot takes on all the latest news in opera land this week we're talking about giant golden statue heads um, among other things so you'll definitely want to stick around for that and of course you can call us on air and get your voice heard 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories 847-866-9687 or tweet us at opera box score or post on our facebook page and now without further ado ashley hardgrave how are you I'm doing all right. How are you doing today, Weston? Oh, I'm just fantastic. You know, it's it's fall. It's not snowing. It's anymore. not snowing. If you're not from Chicago, uh, Halloween night was just snow. The snowiest Halloween in Chicago in 30 years. As an Alabamian, it is wild to me. Did you survive the snow all over Camacho? I did. But for those of you who listened to the um, spooktacular from last week, you might have heard uh, there was some kind of ghost that was ha- haunting <laughs> our podcast every time Weston spoke above. Of like decibel minus three, <laughs> all of a sudden you heard like his voice digitized. So it was like the the ring or whatever that movie is where the girl calls out of the TV. So I only know was, about the ring cycle. That was our, our treat to you, uh, <laughs> spectacular listeners. There, <laughs> yeah, it was all on purpose. It was all just spooky Halloween hijinks. Yes. All right, without further ado, we got to talk some opera. Huddle up, let's go inside the huddle.
just completed a run of Louisa Miller at Lyric Opera of Chicago, where he made a critically acclaimed role de- house debut as Worm. Bass Solomon Howard will be heard in concert at Washington National Opera as the winner of the 2019 Marian Anderson Vocal Award. Then he'll go to the Metropolitan Opera for the Julie Taymor production of The Magic Flute. But we have him here right now. Solomon Howard, welcome to your dream role as a guest on Opera Box Score. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> oh, Solomon Howard, I'm so glad you're here. This is Oliver. How are you? Oh, great. How are you? Great. Oh, so we. Yes, you're so welcome. And congratulations for being on the show. Um, so we have, you know, some a short time to talk to you. I know you're a super busy guy. We want to get right to the point. Um, if people want to learn more about your biography, there are many places they could find it. You've been profiled on HuffPo. You've been profiled on CNN. Uh, everybody wants a piece of Solomon Howard. <laughs> so, so there's lots to read about about your upbringing. Um, but I want you to highlight, if possible, uh, any specific experience you've had on the road to your amazing career where you feel like you really you saw this was the step that I needed to take. And I will just, I don't want to answer for you, but I also want to highlight to our listeners that you play percussion. And I don't know exactly when you studied percussion, if you studied professionally in college, if you just learned it in church. But uh, I'm fascinated by that aspect of your uh, musical ed- education. Oh, wow. Well, as far as percussion goes, we'll, we'll kind of work our way backwards uh, to work our way forward. But as far as percussion goes, I started playing in church. And then uh, when I went to college, uh, uh, I studied uh, with Wilson Chimbo Cordonier. Um outside of school. I went to school for voice, uh, but I started taking lessons with Chimbo, as he's known uh, to the uh, Latin uh, jazz and salsa communities. And uh, another percussionist by the name of Tiki Basias. Um, I studied with him as well at the West Coast, East Coast, West Coast thing, uh, uh, being in the States a lot at that point particular time uh, and traveling from east to west uh, wanted to make sure I had you know someone they're really good friends so that's how I was able to meet the two and study with the two uh, but yeah so I've been playing since a kid and uh, started studying and taking it more seriously when I uh, went to school for uh, for voice and you know wanted to perfect that craft so why not also perfect the other uh, aspect of, of music or you know it's Still, still a work in progress, but you know, working towards perfection. Yeah, you've got some work to do um, still. So, <laughs> yeah, got some work to do. As far as uh, uh, voice, uh, I would say what really, really uh, helped me. Well, I got my start in classical music, and and well, as a kid, ninety ninety two, uh, I was singing with uh, Washington Performing Arts. Um, fast forward, then I went to uh, my church, uh, Metropolitan Baptist Church, with my godfather, Thomas Tyler, who was the music 
um, had a very, very diverse uh, music ministry at the church, as we call it. Uh, so we did a lot of stuff uh, with orchestra oratorio. And then uh, in, in college, uh, I wasn't going to go to school. Um, I have a daughter uh, who's 17 now. Uh, wow. But I had my daughter and you know, wasn't necessarily going to go to school after high school. So I took a few years off. And my godparents uh, thought that I needed to go to school to work on this voice that they noticed that I had my godfather being a musician. And so I went to Morgan State University and traveling the world there, I kind of just skimming through, uh, trying to give you a short story, traveling the world with Morgan State University Choir. We were named by Reader's Digest Time Act, America's Best College Choir. So we travel all the time, singing with just about every major symphony, orchestra, philharmonic worldwide. And uh, so that's where the love for classical music was really cultivated, nurtured, and, and um and something that I, you know, passionately fell in love with. Uh, it was working with, here in the States, uh, with Bobby McFerrin as a conductor, um, and then later working with uh, Wynton Marcellus. Actually, the, uh, it, it was the other way around. I worked with Wynton Marcellus first, mm-hmm. and then Bobby McFerrin. For me, seeing two African-American men that had backgrounds, and I mean, they're both in jazz, but also have background in classical music. Bobby McFerrin actually would conduct uh, the concerts that we would do with him, the second half, Fade Over Nine for a Requiem. Uh, he would do his improv thing on the first half. Hmm. But seeing two African-American men that were equally as gifted uh, and talented in classical music and jazz, uh, with me having a background in gospel, uh, African Latin jazz, all that, uh, but you know, having those, those being able to cross genres like that and still be great. Uh, those two guys helped me solidify uh, the choice to pursue a career in opera. So it was 2008 that I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in opera. So I took off pretty fast after that. I did my master's at Manhattan School of Music and. 2011, 2012 is when I was discovered. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. But, Solomon, um, yeah. we, we had ghosts on our show um, <laughs> last week, and I just want to make sure if you have a, a radio uh, in your room, if you're tuned to WNUR, which you should be tuned to all the time, uh, if, if you turn it down, I think we're getting a little bit of feedback. It could be on our end, but uh, just in, just as a precaution. Um, oh, and, no, I don't have a radio on. Yeah, nobody has radios anymore, so <laughs> <laughs> just checking. Um, so we love talking about uh, new opera here, and um, I, this is kind of a, a long wind-up for a question, and I'm sorry, but I really want to get to the heart of the matter here. Um, your career to date doesn't seem to include the roles that we expect to see a, a bass sing. I mean, you have some of them, like you've sung Zarastro, you've done the Somnus Cadmus deal in Semele, uh, you've sung Timur and Commendatore and Il Re and Aida. But I think what you're known for right now are these uh, re- pioneering roles of Muhammad Ali in um, what is that show the called? Appro- an approaching, an approaching Ali. Approaching Ali. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And also a, a re kind of a revisioning of Philip Glass's Appomattox, where you oh, play love that one. You play Frederick Douglass yeah. and Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. So these are obviously roles that are specific to having uh, an African American in in that part. Are you consciously? choosing 
work that avoids the stereotype of villain servant and doing these more, I don't know, uh, heroic and, you know, interesting, you know, challenging new works that feature your voice type in a, in a different way? Uh, not necessarily consciously choosing to avoid any, anything. Uh, the roles that I would typically do are, as you said, the villain, the high priest, the father. Uh, a lot of this, uh, well, I would say the high priest, the father. Uh, I have some experience with those types of roles, being a father myself. Also, uh, high priest growing up in church, uh, bring, being the son of preachers, uh, ministers. Uh, so I don't necessarily avoid any types of roles. Um, it's uh, pretty much, uh, you know, just the traje- trajectory of the career so far. Um, I've also done, you know, Fiesco and Simon Bocanegra. But the, uh, the, the new works, the new operas, I mean, it's, it's one thing to have, you know, studied and, and, and worked with people who call themselves or who are known to be, you know, aficionados of of Wagner or Verdi, but to actually have a composer in the space and creating something in real time with you, also tailoring uh, a work for your voice is something totally different. Um, but then matters that speak to us right now um even though appomattox was 1865 and 1965 a lot of what's going on or what was going on then as far as uh voter rights oppression um it's something that's still an issue today that people many people feel uh the rights of of voters uh in certain from certain backgrounds, they're being infringed upon. Um, so we're still addressing the same issues. Uh, so it's something that, you know, being African-American, being a minority, uh, to do a work that speaks to that. Um, not just the fact that these are uh, Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King were pillars in the African-American and world, uh, on, on the world stage as well. Um, but, you know, what the actual roles and text speaks to at this particular moment. So, you know, it's not something like, you know, I just said, oh, oh I want to be Frederick Douglass. I want to be Martin Luther King. Uh, of course, I would love, I, I'm honored to portray those roles, but it's the messages that went along with them as well. So credits to the librettists and us, obviously, uh, Maestro Philip Glass for, for those stories. Um, Approaching Ali, um, funny. I actually got the chance to meet Ali. Um, oh wow! Really? What was he like? <laughs> about a year. It's about a year before he passed away, so he didn't talk much. He wasn't talking much. Mm-hmm. But um, we sat down, and and I, you know, I started just pouring out my heart to him because I, I, uh, my uncle, one of my uncles, uh, trained as a boxer, and he he uh, sparred with Sugar Ray Leonard in mm-hmm. the D.C. area. Um, and so he would teach us, he was training us as we were growing up, uh, my, my brothers and some of the cousins. Uh, so I trained uh, boxing with my uncle, Richard Dickerson. And um, it, we watched, uh, he required that we watch a lot of Ali film, uh, videos. Uh, and uh, so 
you know, growing up and seeing, watching these VHS tapes of, of, of Muhammad Ali, um, his character being larger than life is something that, you know, actually, I, like, one of the, one of his uh, slogans or things that he used to say all the time was, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I don't have to be what you want me to be. I can be who I want to be. That's something that I carry with me when people would question it. Why are you singing opera? Why aren't you singing, yeah. hmm. you know, R&B? Why aren't you singing gospel? You're doing and it on your own terms, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm doing it on my own terms. Just as the great Ali uh, did, on his, did his, on his own terms. So to meet him and to think that it wasn't boxing that took me to meet Ali. It was opera that took me to meet Ali. It was full circle for me. I did it on my own terms, and I was seated right across from the greatest part of all times, that one of the one of the most popular uh, figures and most important figures of, of all times. Uh, so, you know, these types of things, uh, the messages are usually what, what really, really uh, pull me towards a piece. Uh, and um, and a lot of them speak to, you know, uh, uh, Philip Glass and they, uh, composers like that. A lot of them speak to things that are going on uh, that are still stories that are still relevant. Uh, Solomon, this is Ashley. Hi. Uh, thank you so much Hi, again for joining us. It's it's lovely to meet you over the airwaves. Um, you know, I as, as I was listening to you just now, a couple of these really um, beautiful, wonderful common threads kind of came together for me, you know, as you're talking about, you know, the roles that you've been able to do and, and you immediately applied personal experiences to both of them, you know, in, in playing right. the father roles, you're like, oh, I'm a father. And then in the high priest, you know, you're, you're growing up in religion and, and, you know, how, how the ties to gospel kind of brought you into what this journey is. Um, so I just, I, I thought that was really beautiful to see kind of all of those things come together. Is that, you know, is that one of the approaches that you take when you're, when you're learning pieces? Is that kind of step one for you is like, what part of my life actually can connect with this character? Is that, is that like a step you take or is that just a beautiful uh, coincidence that's been happening for you as of late? <laughs> it's, it's actually, I mean, it started off as a beautiful coincidence. Oh, you know, I'm singing the guy that prays on stage. Oh, well, I grew up praying, you know. Um, uh, you also sang the lion, so you're a guy who I eats. I also sang the lion. Uh-huh. Um, 
And so I kind of like channeled my my grandparents and some of the like the choirs that I sang in at church, and some of the the mannerisms of the of the elderly, while still having to, you know, sing uh, correctly in beautiful tones. Someone even commented um, uh, to a friend that was in the cast. Uh, they were sitting on the audience, and they told the friend after their friend afterwards. Wow, that old guy has really done a great job. <laughs> that old guy can move. <laughs> well, they thought it was like, you know, his voice sounds really fresh to be so old. <laughs> um, and I, I tell you, my family came to the show, and my own parents, aunts, uncles didn't know who I was until I started singing. <laughs> so I really was able to. Yeah, regular Eddie Murphy here. That, right, right, right. Regular Eddie Murphy there. <laughs> Uh, Mark Twain says, "Whenever Eddie Murphy's in the room, there's you know over 100 people there. Yeah. <laughs> He's not alone." Yeah, but you know yes, that. I do try. That yo, that's awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, and the other thing that I I heard, you know, sort of the common theme was was the representation. You know, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned Bobby McFerrin, and you mentioned these right. people that were you know you got to see at a young age. You know, people that you know had had things that were in common with you. However, you know, visual and simple, it was like oh, somebody that looks like me is doing this amazing thing. You know, and so now you are you are becoming that next generation of of folks that are going to be part of the representation. And you are representing in an art form that is is having its comeuppance of representation, which is which is so fascinating. Absolutely. So, do and you? One of the reasons why I never deny anyone the opportunity to speak with me, or for me to go to a school, or even you know talking with my daughter and her friends whenever we're together, they they you, know, you can get to the point where you are the, the parent that always has something to say, or you are the one that that you know the kids don't mind asking you questions yeah. because they know that you know you can say you can you know offer helpful advice or tips or whatever it is uh, so it's something that I always make sure uh, people know that I am available for questions for and sharing my story it's always important because you never know who's going through the same thing that right. might need that same encouragement if not a little more so yeah, absolutely. So, and and it's you know it seems clear that you did have you know in in many ways a great support system to kind of set you up for this this sort of success. Uh, so you know for this next generation of Solomons out there, what is what is one of the things that you want to put into the world to to help that next generation of Solomons that maybe this version of Solomon didn't have? Well, for me, I would say um, like I talked to uh, my, my daughter and her friends, and you know they all were. At, at some point, you know, interested in a, in a musical instrument, and then they let it go. And I'm telling you, like, if you have it anywhere in your family, you know, even if it's, even if it's not, uh, to pick up an instrument where you learn how to read music, something like, you know, piano, or uh, my daughter plays tuba, um, hmm. a, a violin, whatever, something where it teaches you how to read music, just for that discipline. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about artists uh, is that, you know, musicians, we work the left and the right side of the brain. So, you know, just for the strength of the brain. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm often encouraging encouraging uh, young uh, musicians and just young people in general, but young musicians to, you know, get into situations where they do have to, you know, work to learn how to blend together, how to, just how to work together in general. Yeah. But um, how to blend together specifically in music. 
Uh, also, continuing to, to, to not be afraid of asking questions. Uh, that's something that I was really shy, and you know, yeah. I still have uh, parts of the introverted uh, <laughs> sure. uh, side of me that won't go away. But um, you know, I always encourage you know you like one. It's important to, for us, uh, for my generation and the older generation to to know that to to allow for people to see that we are available for questions and you know advice, whatever. And to um, encourage that asking for help and yeah. encouragement, just listening. Sometimes that's I mean, sometimes that's all that needs to be done. Just yeah. listen. Someone just needs someone to talk to. Um, but yeah, to for the younger generation to not be afraid of asking questions. The worst thing, my godmother used to tell me all the time, the worst thing that someone could say is no. But you don't know if they're going to say no if you don't ask the question. Right. Um, and so it's getting them over the fear the of the knowledge. no. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Continue to seek the knowledge. And early on, get into the right habits early on. It's much harder to break uh, later on down Preach. the line. <laughs> Solomon, uh, we have just like a couple seconds left. I want to pivot really quickly before we say goodbye. Um, in our next segment, we are going to be uh, giving advice on how to enjoy the ring cycle. Do you have any insight or little tidbit that you learned as you were preparing Fafner, which you will be singing here in Chicago in a couple months? Well, look, I, I also tell people, hey, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Rings got its story from Ring Cycle. Mm-hmm. So if you've seen Lord of the Rings and you're into that, then it's something that you will be open to. And then the, um, what is the, what is it? Uh, kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit. That's all you need. Um, so, so uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, familiar tunes, um, melodic lines in Wagner and, um, some people, you know, worry, like, you know, sitting through all that music, but there's so much going on on stage. Uh, you know, I tell people, you know, like, well, an opera with no intermission, like, you go to the movies, don't you? Um, <laughs> you don't have an intermission when you go to the movie. You get up and you go to the restroom and you come back if you have to go. So, you know, try and go beforehand. Uh, that's something you're worried about. But this is music that... Solid <laughs> this advice. This is music that you would love, that you will love. It's... Um, it, it would be a sense of nostalgia hearing tunes that you didn't know. Wow, that's from an actual opera. You know, these shows that we grew up watching, they borrowed these tunes. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the stories are great. Everything is based around the power of this ring. And uh, as one of the giants, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm greedy. I want the power, you know. So, <laughs> Once again, uh, drawing know, from your life experience of greed. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Eat a lot, you know. I'm actually getting ready to eat another dinner. So, you know, <laughs> yes, a little, a little, a little greedy. You know? National hero, uh, right? Well, <laughs> I, National well, hero. I don't want to keep you from yeah. your second dinner too much, so we'll go ahead and wrap uh, I it up. This was a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Solomon Howard will give his Marian Anderson Vocal Award concert Monday, November 25th, at Washington National Opera. Solomon, thank you so much for joining us here live on Opera Box Score. Take care. Since George hasn't been in the studio for about a month now, it's fair to say I've taken over completely. Yep, that means we're talking about Wagner. That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score.
More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by Chicago Fringe Opera, presenting Wojtzeck, November 14th through 23rd. You're really excited about Wojtzeck. I'm so excited. There are hands. <laughs> exactly. Listeners, there are hands. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> Georg Buchner's eponymous 1836 play, which asks, quote, is there really any difference between man and beast? Nope. Uh, no, I think we show our teeth uh, when we smile. Mm, yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Join Chicago Fringe Opera in the Chicago Chicago premiere of Tom Waits's alt chamber opera Voitsek. So we have a, now a new category for chamber opera. We have all chamber, like there's alt like country alt, or yeah, or like I alt, love it yeah, so much. For example, <laughs> oh no, this is better. I hope uh, featuring an all new orchestration by acclaimed jazz pianist Carl Kennedy. Oh, interesting. Mm, he's like part of the Kennedy family. You know, they're known for their jazz. <laughs> And Diana's yeah. yes. Join Fringe on November 7th for a special $20 preview or use the code TOMTOM10. That's Tom. Tom one zero for ten dollars of regular admission on November fourteenth, sixteenth, twenty first, twenty third. Go to chicagofringeopera.com for tickets and more information. I think I have a typo there. It's, it's for ten dollars off regular admission. Ooh, what? Not ten dollars. <laughs> That's my bad. I totally take responsibility for, for that. For shame. Chicagofringeopera.com. Last week, we cracked open a listener question from Lillian. She asked, and this is her speaking, I'll be coming to Chicago next year for Wagner's Ring Cycle. How would you suggest I prepare? What should I read, listen to, or study? Would love your insight and recommendations. We, we talked about it a little bit, but tonight we're digging deeper into that question with Opera Box Score's Guide to the Ring Cycle. This is the kind of thing that happens when I'm in charge. Uh, <laughs> sorry, George. <laughs> well, mostly I think it's uh, Oliver we have to feel sorry for. Are you excited about this segment, Oliver? Uh, I'm sorry, are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, last week we talked a little bit about sort of the basic preparations of what to do. You know, uh, Ashley gave us uh, some excellent recommendations on where to eat, uh, where to pee, probably, as I recall, <laughs> the various that. things to know about. Uh, but the thing I want to talk about today is sort of the headspace you get into right after you bought your very first ring cycle tickets, and you're sitting there and you're you have a slight moment of panic. This is normal. This is fine. Uh, the first thing I kind of want to uh, put out there is that despite the scale of the work, which is rather impressive, like Solomon Howard said in the previous segment, uh, if you know Lord of the Rings, you're kind of good to go, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much, uh, it, 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 I have to say, well, one of the things I really like about uh, Wagner, and particularly middle period Wagner, uh, which is what the Ring Cycle essentially is, um, is is the fact that it has a, a pacing to it that feels very modern and cinematic compared to a lot of other things uh, that we listen to in the Opera House, you know, uh, all season long. Um, the music moves along at a fairly nice clip, even though there's a lot of it, um, and you don't have any of the recitative aria cabaletta forms that you would see in like say bel canto or anything there's no moment where you're going to be sort of stopping and and they express sort of the same sentiment four times in a row you know oh what now I mean? we're at the aria yeah no that, that doesn't really happen here <laughs> no this is um but this is what's so interesting about it and what was so revolutionary about the piece to begin with um 
Obviously, the scale was pretty revolutionary at the time, but really the thing that you have to be ready for if you're going into the ring cycle is how it's structured. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. So uh, Wagner was very much a proponent of uh, the uh, futuristic music, Zukunft music, uh, I believe is the phrase. Uh, And he's very much obsessed with ridding opera, as he saw it, of these conventions that he thought were no longer necessary. Uh, the, recitati- the recitative, the uh, uh, the aria distinction, that didn't make a lot of sense to him. Uh, really, he thought that a lot of those were just things that people go to the opera for and might, you know, enjoy them, but those are conventions. They're not getting at anything deeper in the work itself. And Wagner, of course, was very much uh, obsessed with the idea of creating this complete theatrical work Gesamt of art. Kunstwerk. Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah. That's what it is in... <laughs> I'm just going to mouth trombone the Valkyrie every <laughs> just, few Just moments. as I go along. Just to make sure you're ready. We should, we should, uh, we should record that and just put it in as the segment. No, uh, we should have segment. Solomon's Kill the Rabbit. That's what we oh, should that'd be so good. that into a sound clip. Yeah. <laughs> Do it, George. <laughs> um, so um, basically, uh, his thing was, his idea was that what if we had this continuous melody holding everything together from the very beginning, from the very, uh, from the very sort of birth of not just the opera, but, you know, existence itself, all the way to the very end, this big fiery sort of uh, end of the world as we know it. Um, But in order to do that, you have to think about structure. If you're not going to be relying on aria, recitative, quartet, uh, you really have to be structuring your opera along much different, much more dramatic lines. And the solution for this, in Wagner's mind, was leitmotifs. Everyone loves leitmotifs. You know them. You love them. If you don't, it's fine. Again, listen to the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, and you've got leitmotifs in there. Essentially, if you don't know what they are, leitmotifs uh, are basically a little musical phrase, uh, usually not very long, usually not super complicated, which identify sort of a person, a place, a thing, a feeling, an action, really anything. Um, and uh, And so whenever you hear that, you know, aha, this is happening with this person because I know his theme, or this is uh, this is uh, this thing. This is the it's ring like a musical subtext. Exactly, and this is not you know new to Wagner. It, it existed before Wagner. Other people used light motifs, and the uh, sort of the ur idea of a light motif exists way way before Wagner. Um, but uh, what made it different in the Ring Cycle is the density of it, and this is the thing that I probably want to. Uh, I, I would probably recommend that people new to the ring cycle would go and seek out. There are plenty of videos on YouTube. Uh, I, uh, the uh, the Schulte ring cycle, if you get that on CD, the first disc is sort of dedicated to pointing out various light motifs, and I would highly recommend listening to those. It's probably also on Spotify. Are you saying that the box set of the Schulte ring is yeah. like an instructional? Yeah, it's, it's, it oh. comes with a little reading guide or I listening no guide. Idea. It's great. I've I've listened to it many times. Hmm. Not not well the cycle many times. The uh, the guide I've listened to many times as well. Um, but the uh, it it comes with uh, with this sort of guide as to what you're hearing, what you're listening to, and the really really cool thing about it is that it really supports the drama first and foremost. In Wagner, in particularly in The Ring Cycle, there's never just music for music's sake. Mm-hmm. It always means something. So not only do you have various leitmotifs that represent various ideas or people or feelings, um, they interact with each other. Um, the opening sort of of The Ring Cycle is this sort of E-flat, which turns uh, into an uh, 
E flat chord, which is sort of things taking form. And then as soon as the Rhine Maiden starts singing, it changes uh, into uh, the flowing of the Rhine Maiden's motif. And that turns into the nature motif. And then, you know, you do a little tweaks here and there. You change up the rhythm. You put in a minor key. You invert it. It means something else. So not only do these two, uh, do any two motives, you know, interact with each other, um, one can become the other and give you insight into what that first one meant even if you even if it's not explicitly stated in the text uh and don't worry if this sounds really academic and complicated uh it kind of is and it also it really isn't one of the the neat things about the ring cycle is that you can know a lot about sort of the music theory and be totally satisfied by it but if you know nothing about music theory and and you're just here to listen to right of the valkyries right of the valkyries is sounds great if you know music theory or if you've never heard the word uh, quarter note before, you know, <laughs> it's 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 it, it it propels the action forward and interacts in a really interesting way. But if you do know some of these themes, you get a little bit extra insight here and there. For example, there's a, an incident where um, the ring is uh, has a curse on it. Again, think Lord of the Rings. Everyone who wears it ends up sort of dying and is, you know, possessed by whatever, whoever uh, the ring, uh, ha- the ring has a curse on it. And so there's a curse motif. And near the end of the uh, of the very of the very last opera, you hear a greeting spoken to Siegfried, the main character of that particular opera, uh, and the greeting is the is that motif. Even though he's just saying "Hello, Siegfried, how are you? Welcome," the way he sings it, "Heil Siegfried, da da da, bum bum bum," that's the curse. So you know, if you're listening and you know the curse, something's bad. Bad's gonna happen with this guy. It's great. I love it so much. My hands are going all over. No, the place. yeah, there's lots of gesticulation. <laughs> um, but I mean, another way of saying this is that. Yes. Um, you can listen as a neophyte and just enjoy it for the music. Mm-hmm. But the more you listen, the more you're going to get out of it. The re-listenability of the ring cycle is phenomenal. You know, even if you only have one recording, you can really listen to it and and catch something different. It's like we're watching the Golden time. Girls, folks. It, it- <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, that's that's what I love about this, and and I know we'll get into some of this stuff uh, a little later on. Also, for the record, Weston, I could listen to you riff on this all day. Can we do like a day long podcast? Oh, where I, you I just desperately, do this? desperately Encourage want to. Don't you and I are the him. only ones here, and we're doing it. No, I mean that's that's what's so for me. Like I, as much as I know this medium, as much as I have studied and worked and performed in in this medium, there are some things that I don't like to get too academic about and just let the music happen to me. Agreed. And the ring cycle is one of those for me. Mm-hmm. There are some places where I love kind of digging in and, and geeking out a little bit on some of the more you know, technical inter- intricacies. The light motifs that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's also, you know, this is one that I am fully content to sit in an audience and let the grandness of everything happening just wash over me. And that's one of the things that I want to mention to folks is, you know, if you are, as Oliver said, a neophyte, if this is a, you know, if, if this is going to be your first time seeing this, if this is going to be one of your first times experiencing something on this grand of a scale, a couple of things. Number one, it is totally okay to let this just wash over you. Number two, it's okay if you don't like all of it. Weston is going to disagree with me slightly on <laughs> that because he loves bit. it so much. But there might be parts of it that you don't enjoy. There you may might be... need to listen to it again, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you just might not know it yet. And also number three is that there are going to be moments where you're going to need to 
intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically tap out in the <laughs> middle of it, that is okay. There's so much going on. There is no way that you're going to be able to pin your eyeballs open and catch everything that's happening all at once. There's so much spectacle to this that if you do need to let your you know synapses stop firing for a few moments, you can jump right back into this and still enjoy all of the grandness that's going to be put in front of you. Weston, back to you. <laughs> back to me. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I do think that um, one of the uh, things people might not be expecting if they're more familiar with, uh, I say, you know, Verity operas at the same time period, uh, you, you might not expect the pace to go by so quickly. And because yeah. there's less repetition, it is easier to miss certain things. Like uh, Oliver, for example, confided in me, he doesn't know why... Uh, uh, the drag, uh, the giant turned Hoffner, into a dragon, yeah. Yeah. and I knew, and I told him, but he didn't pay attention, so he missed it. No, uh, it's something <laughs> about a cloak. It's like the invisibility cloak. No, no, it's a, it's a Hermi- helmet. Hermione it's, it's a helmet. cast a spell on F- <laughs> Fafner. Yeah. yeah, and then and then the Muggles came. And, yeah. No, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, there's there's so much going on. There's a lot going on. It's, one thing that is very helpful, however, uh, it, it, one of um, one of the things I think the only thing that I sometimes get a little uh, a little bit sort of eh, on. In, in the cycle for me who's, as someone who's listened to it quite a lot is essentially every opera after the first one has an extended section where it summarizes the events up to this point. Oh, like a previously oh, on, yeah? yeah? Previously <laughs> on the ring cycle. And, and this literally <laughs> happens and it's always given like this sort of flimsy justification. Votan comes down, he's going to play 20 questions and, he, and, uh, and through that you're going to find out what's been going on. Usually there's something extra sprinkled in there but you'll always get a synopsis if for some reason on day three you're like, I don't remember what happened in Das Rheingold, uh, Rheingold at all. Uh, it's okay. Well, You'll get a little review. Das Rheingold. <laughs> <laughs> because some of the music is so beautiful that you might doze off for just a moment. I mean, then the trombones <laughs> will be your alarm it's clock like and wake you up. It's getting a massage on your ears. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about, just a little bit, about the sort of historical context and why this is such an important cycle of operas. Why you should try not to fall asleep like Oliver. <laughs> uh, it's just so, so warm. <laughs> <laughs> Just so so warm. So uh, he uh, the cycle took about twenty six years to complete, which let's, is let's think about that for a second. A there are famous people that are twenty six years old. It I'm twenty six years old. It and is I'm a famous. Weston Williams years. It is a Weston Williams cycle. It is an Ariana Grande cycle. It is a Chance the Rapper cycle. <laughs> it is a, a Miley up? Cyrus. She cycle. has like yeah. She always keeps a list of how old I, people are. I like are, to think so. she just <laughs> actually has them all memorized. I keep my tabs. But this is from eighteen forty eight to eighteen seventy four. In fairness, it wasn't a continuous, nothing else was happening. He took a break to write Tristan and Isolde. You know, take a break to revolutionize music, whatever. It's definitely what I do on some of breaks. <laughs> um, but uh, he sent, the, the thing to know is that he wrote uh, the, uh, the texts essentially in reverse order. Oh, and then one, if you didn't know, Wagner also did his own librettos for this. Uh, he wrote the, uh, the last opera first, uh, moved backwards, and then he wrote the music in chronological order, which is kind of interesting. That uh, is bananas. There, there is, uh, I, I should say that uh, Goethe Demerung, the final opera in the cycle, uh, uh, musically, he was he w- he was so different by the end of the cycle. I think he did 
did spend a lot of time revising that original draft. He changed mm. the title from uh, Siegfried's, to Siegfried's Death to Go to Demerung, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, the ending, of course, he agonized over and did all sorts of different, uh, had all sorts of different ideas for. But he eventually came up with it. When he started writing it, he was a kind of a, a different person than he ended up being. Um, if, if you're looking at the dates here with me, 1848 is the year of the revolutions of 1848, uh, which was a series of political uprisings all across Europe, one of which in 1849 Wagner himself participated in, which is important because it really puts a lot of the character of Siegfried into context. It does. The whole notion of this revolutionary hero who's coming to sort of save Germany from this old power, this old nobility. It's very much a political allegory. Uh, a lot of people uh, like to read it. Uh, I think it was um, George Bernard Shaw who read it as an anarchist allegory where uh, Siegfried was uh, a Bakunin. You know, it was it's wild. Uh, I'm not sure how much I buy that specifically. I love the ring cycle as anarchy. That makes it's, me... It's so yeah. good. I mean, the, the final scene with the, the, the old order up in flames and right. then all that you're left with is sort of that humanity all that potential, nothing to replace it. But the, the bringing it down was very much the spirit of the times. And it was something that affected Wagner, not just in 1849 when he participated in the Dresden Uprising, but later on, but because, because of that uprising, he was actually basically in exile from Germany. He lived in Switzerland for years. Yeah. Franz Liszt had to get him a fake passport to escape Germany, which is a wild scene. <laughs> I love that they're in cahoots. It, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, their their whole little weird uh, <laughs> circle, their weird incestuous circle. The the all the futuristic uh, musicians of that era had, all the composers had. Anyway, that's a different that's a different uh, podcast. When we do our day long podcast, yes, actually, yes, I'll talk yes. more about that. Okay, that's fair. <clears throat> Tell me when that is uh, again, so I may <laughs> so he could not be there. <laughs> Mark your calendars to not be around, Oliver. So because of this, um, uh, Wagner put a lot of importance into the drama. For for him, I mean. Let's not beat around the bush here. Wagner was an egomaniac, kind of a terrible guy, um, but he was also very much a, a, a part of that revolutionary spirit that speaks to a lot of people even today, even when they hear it, even if they don't share a lot of Wagner's, uh, shall we say, more anti-Semitic beliefs mm. and things like that. Uh, just an awful, awful, awful things that he believed in and, and, and was a part of. But... That revolutionary spirit was really something that is picked up on by contemporary listeners to our time period as well as that time period. Um, and that's why you'll see a lot of times, especially in, in, when you do, Lillian, come to see the uh, a version in Chicago, it is not going to be a, uh, a traditional naturalistic setup. You're not going to see exactly uh, the forest in the fantasy setting recreated exactly most uh, production, most companies who put on the ring cycle nowadays are uh, uh, are trying to uh, try to bring out some different metatextual aspect yeah. to it. Uh, you're almost never going to get uh, a a straight retelling, which is why it's also a good idea to look into the story beforehand because a lot of companies do assume some sort of level of familiarity with the text before you go in. <clears throat> Um, I've been talking so much, my throat is closing up. <laughs> well, and I mean, and, and, and think about it. I mean, like, we've been talking about how, how busy these stories are, how much right. is happening in these stories. So when we say read a synopsis beforehand, read it, like, the day before, and then go yeah. away from it. Like, go... 
have a nice dinner, go do something and, and let that just kind of soak into you. And then, you know, the lyric also does a really great job of of putting notes and texts in to kind of help you follow along. But and there's an opera concierge, actually. Exactly. You can ask questions. But I think also as you're reading synopsis, make a little flashcard for yourself of like who the characters names are and what their relationships are because that always helps me it's like oh that's his sister that's why they're hot for each other or something <laughs> that's why oh well it's true that's the Little title of the episode guys sorry solomon wagner they're, they're brother and sister that's why they're hot for each other this episode of opera box Corner. wagner had some brilliant ideas and he also had some weird ideas about incest but <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> uh but yeah there, there are things that you should uh be prepared for. I will say that for the Chicago lyric production specifically, having seen the first three operas in that particular cycle, even though it's not naturalistic, it doesn't go nearly as far into weird metatextual territory as something you'd see you would see nowadays in you know say Germany the Bayerische Staatsoper. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a lot more straightforward than that. But they do take some conceptual leaps. I believe they're uh, they're. The theme for the lyrics production is to retake uh, the ring for the theater. So the gods are actors, you know, uh, and everything takes place with this sort of division of reality and theatricality, uh, which is not as complicated as it sounds. And one other resource I would like to suggest, and most opera companies that are putting this on have this, there's almost always going to be a pre-show talk about each one of these operas. Absolutely. I highly recommend, if you're new to it, absolutely go to that because they'll bring out things about that specific production that no YouTube guide, uh, no segment from us will be as thorough in covering. Um, and once again, I would like to hearken back to last week. Um, the one and final authority on the ring cycle, if you need an introduction to it, Anna Russell's Analysis of the Ring Cycle. You can find it on YouTube. It's amazing. You'll thank me later. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, uh, I could... I could literally talk about this for hours and hours more. But we're going to in our daycast, our day-long podcast. Oliver is is trying to escape the uh, the <laughs> studio as we speak, so I'm going to go ahead and move on. Uh, if you've been walking by Lincoln Center and you weren't sure if that giant melty golden head was always there, don't worry. We'll tell you why it's there in the two-minute drill. That's up next only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Listed as a must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill, week after week, Opera Box Score is expanding its reach, discussing the news of the business, talking to opera's most important players, and infotaining the newcomers and longtime fans alike. Does anybody actually read Playbill as, like, a magazine? Or do people, like, go to Playbill.com? <laughs> if they they're do, like, they're already listening. Where are the lists of all the best <laughs> opera podcasts? Listen, if they like us, they like us, I will take it. If you are new to the podcast, look back in our archives to find interviews with the likes of Richard Tucker Award winner Eileen Perez. Oh, amazing. Former so critic for the Chicago Tribune, John Von Ryan. Ooh. And opera librettist to the stars, Mark Campbell. Who so has true. Mark Campbell not written a libretto for? <laughs> I mean, come on. You can also use the podcast as a crib sheet and impress your friends with opera facts from segments like the OBS Hall of Fame, most recently done by yours truly, your friends with opera facts and segments... Oh, God damn it. No, it's fine. <laughs> you can swear. It's, it's, okay, this fine. This is the ad. You can say whatever you want. Ah. 
Okay, where we take a deep dive into the works of the artists you need to know, or if the blood sports of the opera is what you crave, check out, check out our TKO segments where two singers mud wrestle for the crown of <laughs> bel canto supremacy in some of the most difficult arias in the repertoire. It's so hard to clean the studio <laughs> after one it's, of these it's segments. It's really... You know, when you combine all that hairspray and make it with mud, it's <laughs> highly it's flammable. Mary Bates doesn't cut it. We have to pay them overtime. Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box Score to your podcast favorites or stream from Opera Box Score's page on SoundCloud. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. While we were busy with the Halloween spooktacular, November 1st became Opera Omaha Day. Mayor Gene Stothert had the official declaration, quote, Opera Omaha contributes to the vibrant quality of life in Omaha. The announcement comes as the company launches a community collaboration with Opera America for the organization's upcoming 50th anniversary. Dame Emma Kirkby has won Gramophone's Lifetime Achievement Award. The early music goddess joins the rank of conductors like Claudio Abado, Bernard Haydenick, as well as divas Kiri Takanawa and Montserrat Cavalier. Opera Box Score congratulates Dame Emma and reminds Gramophone that we have been at this for five years now. <coughs> The Metropolitan Opera has a new sculpture by American sculptor George Kondo. It's called Constellation of Voices. It's 13 feet high, 1,400 pounds. It's a gold head that's meant to represent, quote, the material form of sound. Kind of looks like a melty face. In an interview with Schmopper, a friend of the show, Douglas Williams, addresses the performing the role of Don Giovanni in the hashtag MeToo era. He says, in my own experience, besides being abhorrently uncomfortable, sexual pressure in the opera workplace is the killer of any desire to experiment or feel uh, or to feel free to create. So it's not just a personal transgression. It is antithetical to a creative environment. I'm glad things are changing. Countertenor Reggie Mobley wants to un-whitewash the classical music history with free concert series called Every Voice. Moby curates and directs the series for Boston's Handel and Haydn Society. Last weekend, concerts celebrated the connections between African-American and Jewish composers. In an ongoing saga, more than 70 students have signed on to a lawsuit that seeks to block the sale of Westminster Choir College at Ryder University. The Residential Music Conservatory has been under threat of separating from its Princeton, New Jersey campus since March of 2017. Vancouver Opera General Director Kim Grainer is stepping down following a, quote, divergence of opinion with the board concerning the future growth of the company. As Joyce Donato's three-year War and Peace tour comes to a close later this week, the Mezzo posted on social media that the, that the close will be followed a day later by a conversation with none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg and author Donna Leon. The talk will be titled A Motion for Peace and will be broadcast live on YouTube. La Monet's upcoming productions of Arthur Honegger's Jean-Doc Boucher is stirring up a lot of controversy, at least for one European lobbying group. The pro-Europa Christiana Federation's main objection appears to be the nudity Peter DeClaue's production in the production and the fact that Joan herself will be wearing men's clothes for parts of the oratorio. 
heavens. Later this week, the city of Regina, Canada, will be hosting the opera Missing by Marie Clements and Brian Current, which commemorates murdered and missing indigenous women in Canada. Uh, Erica Boudin, the executive director of Regina Treaty Status Indian Services, says, quote, what you would consider as the stereotypical profile of those who would be patrons of symphony orchestras, they wouldn't have very much connection or knowledge of the violence that indigenous people, specifically indigenous women and children, are born into. Anya Harteros received the Meistersinger Medal from uh, the Bavarian State Opera last week. The award comes as the, as the soprano celebrates her 20th anniversary with the company. And on this day, November 4th, it was the premiere of Gluck's La, Gluck's La Clemenza di Tito in 1752, beating Mozart's version by a few decades. In 1863, Berlioz's massive Le Troyen had its premiere in Paris. Richard Strauss's Intermezzo had its premiere on this day in 1924, and it's also the birthday of soprano Luciana Serra, who was born in 1946, and tenor Charles Hackett, who was born in 1889, and that is your two-minute drill. You know, whenever I have a really long two-minute drill and I'm just like about to pass out by the end of it and then we go right into something like that, it makes you feel really bad about my vocal control. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's hard to read nonstop without a break and like it's your so eyes are hard to cross. read. <laughs> Reading is so hard, That was guys. not Anya Harteros, nor was it Damon Emma Kirkby. That was Luciana Serra. Yes, it was. And, uh, and one more on this day that's not from the opera world, but ooh. it's from our part of the country, is on this day in 2008, Barack Obama was first elected. God, I miss him. And I was there in Grant Park. (laughs) So Dame Emma Kirkby has won so many awards. She doesn't need a Lifetime Achievement Award from Gramophone. But it is a really great article that was uh, kind of came out the same time that this was announced in uh, The Guardian. Just talking about how she really did pioneer a sound of early music like in the 70s and how generations began to assume that that was the sound you needed to sing mm-hmm. in the early music style. And she's not, she's just herself. Don't imitate her. She's just being her. And that's the way she sounds. And she's amazing. And we now have much more robust and, you know, uh, full, fully embodied sounds in early music performances. Thank goodness. Uh, even though I adore what Emma, Dame Emma Kirkby, Emma Kirkby did in her career. It's it's such a, it's so 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 fascinating to me to watch the development of uh, period instrument and uh, period yeah. music over the past. Well, we were few just decades. trying to figure it's, it out. You listen to opera like early opera that was trying to sound period correct, like from like 1990 or like the late 80s, <laughs> and and everybody's trying so hard to hold a vibrato in, you know. Yeah, and the, some people yeah. really messed up their voices trying to sound like Emma Kirkby. Uh, it's just whenever yeah. you hear like a counter tenor from yeah. like 1965, yeah. it's but delightful. that's what she sounded like. She didn't have to try, you know. What jumped out at you today, Ashley? You know, uh, the two things that really jumped out at me are uh, is the whole uh, Westminster writer debacle palooza smackdown it's it's really it's such a sticky sticky situation and my my heart and my energy and all my happy vibes are going out to those that are that are holding strong when it comes to the folks at Westminster i mean it's it's been really you know writer is trying to to sell saying that they uh 
that they they can't keep it anymore. But part of the reason that they aren't able to keep it anymore, they're blaming headcount. But when you say two years ago that you're going to sell it to a for-profit company in another country, Ooh. guess what? Freshman music majors don't want to come and be a part of that. So, I mean, they, they shot themselves in the foot and now they're trying to do this. And there's, there's such a lovely legacy at Westminster. So I just mm-hmm. keep fighting the good fight, guys. I really hope that this lawsuit can move forward. I can't believe I'm pro-litigation on this, but I absolutely am. Uh, and <laughs> even the theological seminary has their own like separate lawsuit to that. So that, you know, I'm really just, my heart goes out to those guys and I hope they keep fighting. And the other one that my heart really, really goes out to are our folks up in Regina, Canada that are bringing Absolutely. to light something that is so important. You know, MMIW, which is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, it's it's one of the biggest U.S. and Canada crises that no one is talking about. First Nations and Indigenous women are significantly overrepresented among female Canadian homicide victims. And in America, in the U.S., Native women are more than twice as likely to experience violence than any other demographic. One in three Native women is sexually assaulted during her lifetime, and over 85% of those are by non-Native offenders. So as much as we usually are talking about bringing classical music and and an elite art form to the masses, I'm really thrilled that someone is bringing this international emergency to an elite audience so that it gets the megaphone and the the eyeballs that it deserves. Uh, I I think it's a, a really important step, and I think it's one of, you know, with a lot of the inclusion, a lot of the inclusion and uh, diversity opera, the steps opera has taken towards that in the past few years. That's one group that I feel like has been even underrepresented, even within that upward rise. So yeah. I'm really glad to see it um, taking center stage, if you will. Um, um, the thing that jumped out at me was this, this, this terrible controversy in 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 Belgium over uh, uh, Joan of Arc. I, this 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 lobbying group is is a, a piece of work from what Are, I can tell. They're mad at the nudity, or they're mad at the men's they're, pants. They, they're mad. I they can't. seem to be more mad at the gender thing, and mm. I think they're using the nudity to do it. Uh, actually, this production um, is a co-production with uh, Opera Lyon, uh, and uh, so it premiered two years ago. I think it was two years ago, and they actually had. Um, there were actually far right militant groups outside the opera house fighting on the streets to let you kind of know what side this group is on and why I'm not super pleased by it. But I thought they'd uh, like nudity in Europe. <laughs> well, uh, Not the Belgian Westboro Baptist Church, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got to wrap it up on that note. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. Play the sound effect. I'm trying to play the sound effect. Good call. Bad call. On Opera oh, Box Score. All right, who's got a good I, call for me? Two quick ones. Um, Akhenaten opens up uh, just in a couple of days. A uh, friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo at the Metropolitan Opera, obviously. And it seems that our friend Douglas Williams is doing amazing uh, in his role debut as Don Giovanni at Opera Atelier. Douglas Williams, I know you may not be listening, but maybe somebody who knows you is. I love you. I don't think I'll be able to make it, but I'm reading all the reviews, <laughs> and I'm so proud of you. You got anything for me, Ashley? You know, good call to uh, to my red glass buddy at the Lyric, who is doing a whole lot of really interesting social media bits about uh, the interestingness that is coming to the Lyric this season. There was a bit on Dead Man Walking, which right. I am super excited about. So I'm just I'm grateful that the lyric is is making a conscious effort to really reach out on social platforms. Yeah, make sure I'm I'm going to be there probably this weekend. So maybe if you come on this weekend, you can see me, and that's my good call. It's very easy to see. Just <laughs> look if you, anybody above seven feet tall. That's best. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's me. It. That's me. All right, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at VoxerShorts.com. That's V O X E R S H O R T. 
rts.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabass.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Oliver for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho for Ashley Hardgrave. I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you're talking about the ring cycle or not. We're back on Monday, November 11th at 9 p.m. Central for more opera, more hot takes, and uh, more other stuff. Who knows? It could be anything. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.